Hello, and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. Now, if you're interested in the global economy, you'll have spent time thinking about China. In fact, I'm amazed it's taken us six episodes of Stephanomics to get around to it. But I was waiting for the perfect story to bring China's economic and social transformation to life. I think the case of China's spendthrift millennials might be it. This new generation of Chinese are not like their parents, and they will change the world economy. In a few minutes, I'll talk about that with our resident China hands, the former Wall Street Journal China editor Andrew Brown, and Bloomberg Economics chief economist Tom Orlick. I'll also be grabbing a few minutes for the latest on US-China trade wars with our senior trade reporter Sean Donnan. But first, here's Bloomberg China economy reporter Kevin Hamlin with his insight into the world of the parent-eater. Meet Jenny, a bubbly 25-year-old who works in a television station in Beijing. My mother called me the happiness seekers. <laughs> Our generations were, we are labeled as just lazy or self-centered and uh, and for me, I don't save money. I want to spend my money on traveling, or I want to enjoy the moment. She's one of more than 400 million Chinese millennials, roughly speaking, people aged 18 to 35. That's five times more millennials than in the United States, and it's more than in North America, Europe, and the Middle East combined. Jenny and her millennial peers are very different from the generation who built modern China. The influence of Chinese millennials may even be so great that they also make the world very different from the one we know today. While the previous generation was known for its prolific saving habits, Jenny doesn't put away money at all. She likes to spend spare cash on things including travel and branded cosmetics. She even pays $30 a time for her cat to have a shower in a cat spa. Since Jenny graduated from university in Florida about a year ago, She's traveled to Japan, as well as Shanghai and Xi'an in China. She's looking to visit Greece and Spain in the next couple of years. Her dream is to be a blogger, writing about her travel experiences, something she says her parents think is ridiculous. If there's one thing that sums up Jenny, it's that she likes to live in the moment. I think my parents have saved enough money. <laughs> I always encourage them to spend some, to spend money um, on something they like, but they always try to, to, to save money. That, that's the point I, I don't understand. They worry about the future. The most extreme members of Jenny's generation are sometimes colloquially referred to in a colourful way. They're called the parent-eaters, or in Mandarin, Kun Lao Zhu, a term with profound implications for China and the global economy. Sky-high home prices in big cities mean they struggle to get on the property ladder and often parents have to use their savings to help them meet large down payments and monthly mortgage payments to buy a home. Zach Dykwald is an American who wrote a book called Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change China and the World. Here's what he has to say about the potential global impact of millennials. It's the first East Asian power with enough political and economic clout that the way that they live, the way they see the world, what they want, what they want from a product, what they want from um, a style of loan, what they, how, how they want to see their country perceived in the world for the first time ever, 
has enough cultural gravity that it could start to change, that they could start to change the way that our world spins. This young generation is going to be impacting you personally. Mm -hmm. They redefine every market they touch. And the craziest part about, about a lot of this consumer culture that we're seeing really, really blossoming with this young generation in China is it's hardly started yet. The consumer clout of this young generation has only just begun to articulate itself on the world stage. The spending and saving behavior of the millennial generation already is helping bring down the nation's legendary lofty savings rate from about 42% in 2010 to 35% last year. Here's what Zhu Haibin, chief China economist at JP Morgan, had to say. Because the population is aging, because of these uh, new millenniums, a different spending pattern, China's saving rate will continue to move down. Right? We, we're still pretty high, but uh, we believe that uh, we, we have been argued before that every, we're talking about roughly probably every year two percentage points down of the saving rate. Yeah, that's probably one of the uh, major macro themes to watch out. Millennials choosing to spend on tourism and foreign products rather than save their money is one driver behind why China is poised to import capital from the rest of the world this year for the first time in the modern era after decades of exporting its excess savings to other countries. Deloitte, a big consulting and accounting firm, says the trend will change the world. For now, Jenny and her millennial peers may be too busy making their travel plans to worry about such abstractions. Dykewald's research shows that between 2008 and 2016, China's spending on international travel rose 622%, and of the 9% of mainland Chinese who have passports, two-thirds are millennials. Here's Dykewald again. There's a different sense of why you're working hard. Before you were working hard because that's what everyone did and you were saving up for the future, for the next generation even, or for you to have a good life. You were trying to push back subsistence. Now you're working hard so you can afford that great hot pot meal with your friends on the weekend, so you can afford that Europe trip which you've been imagining, or that Beijing trip, or to buy that great bag that would give you a little bit more social status and make you feel like you're living a good life. I visited Zhengzhou in central China recently a city best known for a huge factory that makes Apple iPhones. I bumped into 30-year-old banker Jiang Yi at a Starbucks coffee shop. He didn't want to be recorded for this podcast, but he told me that in October, he and his wife spent 50,000 yuan, or $7,400, on a trip to Iceland. That's about a quarter of their combined annual income. They've also recently visited Japan and the Maldives, as well as Chinese destinations such as Inner Mongolia and the tropical island of Hainan. Jenny is among the very lucky ones because her parents have accumulated three apartments. So she doesn't worry about saving to buy one and that frees her of a huge burden. Her plan to buy health insurance rather than have idle funds set aside for potential illness is another force that drives China's shift to consumption, which could in turn become a key driver for the country's growth. As for Jenny's other spending, not much of it pleases her parents. The complaints about I spending a lot of money on my cats. I, I keep buying a lot of toys and some snacks for my cat, just like a razor son. 
I don't think I have a very clear pictures uh, mm -hmm. of my futures, but I hope uh, when I enter 30 years old, I can have a lot of free time to go to, go abroad to enjoy my holidays. Yeah, that is my goal. But for those who aren't so lucky, higher indebtedness beckons. Household borrowing has been climbing for 10 years straight at a pace that rivals any such run-up in major economies. Fred Hu runs his own private equity firm in Beijing and used to be the chairman of Goldman Sachs in Greater China. He's 55 years old and his life has spanned the chaos of China's cultural revolution to the emergence of a new consumer culture. When I was growing up as a child, even for me to travel to the provincial capital city, Changsha, was like a dream. And of course, Changsha was uh, very close by. Going to Hong Kong, Taiwan, and the United States, just forget about it. When China was uh, poor and isolated, there was just no hope. People didn't have dreams, didn't even dare to dream. Now for the younger generation of Chinese, anything is possible. The sky is the limit. I'm Kevin Hamlin in Beijing for Bloomberg News. So I'm joined now by Andrew Brown, Editorial Director for the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, which is going to be held in Beijing later this year, who was previously China editor for The Wall Street Journal, and our own chief economist, Tom Orlick, who spent 11 years in Beijing before moving last year to D.C. So, Andy, we heard a lot there about parent eaters, the millennials, their spending habits. Are they telling us that China is now on course to really becoming a consumer-driven society? Oh, yeah. China, China is well on its way to becoming a consumer society, driven by the millennials. The millennials are the luckiest generation in Chinese history. Their grandparents ex experienced extreme deprivation, even starvation, if they were alive in the late 50s during the Great Leap Forward. Their parents understood hardship, but they also cashed in on the greatest economic boom in human history in the 1980s, 90s, in the 2000s. And the millennials are going to inherit it all. And what are they going to do to the economy and to society when you look to the next 10 or 20 years? How is this going to shape China? I think it's going to transform the Chinese economy and with it, potentially, the global economy. I mean, I think of it in terms of three major trends. The first is that Chinese millennials want authenticity. They want the real thing. Their parents were okay with fakes. The uh, knockoff Gucci's. And, yeah, yeah. It was all about the price tag. And if the knockoff Gucci was 90% as good as the real thing, that was fine. The millennials don't want that. So obviously, this implies greater protection for intellectual property. Uh, it implies more rule of law. Uh, and it implies less trade friction between China and its major trading partners. The days of China as the knockoff center of the globe are numbered. I think the second uh, factor is that millennials care very deeply about how their goods are made. 
They care about environmental issues, environmental pollution. They care about safety, product safety, industrial safety. And the government has to focus on these issues like a laser uh, in response. Again, uh, a big positive for China with global implications. The third one I would mention is millennials want customization. They're not content to be merely passive consumers of goods as well as services. They want to be co-creators. They want their mini Cooper or their Nike sneakers to scream me. It's all about expressing their individuality. And in a, in a way, this sort of flips all the power relations in the Chinese economy. It strengthens the market over the state. It strengthens consumers over producers. Uh, it tends to work in favor of private enterprise. I don't know if it's going too far to say this, but I think in some ways it's the millennial consumers that is going to force the type of reforms onto the Chinese economy that the current crop of leaders in Beijing are so reluctant to implement and could in time lead to political opening as well. Tom, when people look at China, uh, the two big things that China has to achieve if it's going to continue with the kind of growth it's had. You know, we know this, it has to become a more consumer driven society. You know, economists have always said you have to have consumption rises and savings fall as a share of GDP. But they also need to get productivity growth. Uh, and that's the big question mark. You know, people who are pessimists about China, who say the whole thing's going to blow up, tend to be pessimists on the productivity side. You know, how does this story that Andy's telling play into how you might think the economy is going to evolve? I think on the first axis that you talked about, Stephanie, the um, shift away from high saving and investment towards a more consumer driven economy, um, this millennial shift that Andy uh, has identified is going to be incredibly significant. The parents of the current generation, they grew up in the reform era. But they also grew up in a period where state-owned enterprises were closed, the iron rice bowl of welfare benefits was broken, and they responded to that by saving, saving a really high share of their income. The millennial generation haven't experienced that stripping away of social benefits. They certainly haven't experienced the privations of the Mao era. And so, as Andy mentioned, they really have a different attitude to consumption they're very free spending. That can only drive a shift in China's economy away from saving, away from investment towards consumption. Um, the second question which you raised is, can this also drive higher productivity in China's economy? Ultimately, that's what's most important if China's going to sustain high growth. I think there the jury is still out, but a couple of points suggest reasons for optimism. Firstly, that desire for authenticity is going to mean that China needs to put in place firmer protections for intellectual property. If you don't have intellectual property protections, the market will continue to be flooded with fakes. Um, when you put the intellectual property protections in place, that's part of creating the right atmosphere for a more dynamic entrepreneurial economy. The second point I would make is that the millennial generation are just much better educated than their parents and certainly their grandparents. Their parents 
probably graduated from high school. The millennials probably graduated from university, uh, and many of them will have studied overseas as well. That higher level of education is also a basis for optimism uh, about a more productive economy. You know, it's interesting that if you bring together the things that both of you have talked about, um, I'm struck by two things. You know, one is it sort of starts to look like the story that was always told about China. You know, we've talked in the past about why, uh, you know, what what the West, quote unquote, thought when they let China into the World Trading Organization, that, you know, if you if you allow, if you see, embrace China in the global economy, inevitably being part of a more global market economy makes you also more likely to be a democracy um, and a more market led country. We haven't seen that to the extent to the extent that we thought we were going to see it, and certainly not on the dem- democracy um, front. But I think the and, but you're suggesting that we just sort of it's just a matter of time that inevitably uh, the individualism of a consumer-driven society means you have to start giving political choices to people as well as choices in the marketplace. Do you think that's yeah? Well, right? I, I think I think it, it's all it's all generational. You know, so the the grandparents of today's millennials um, were penny pinchers. They counted their pennies very carefully. Um, the parents were thrifty. They saved. And the millennials who have never experienced an economic downturn, and actually their parents haven't really experienced an economic downturn for the last four decades or so, and they want to spend. Uh, and, you know, they can dip into family savings. See, a lot of their parents would have. Uh, I think that's where the parent eating comes. Out. This is where the pa- yeah. this is where the parent this is where the parent. I mean, they, a lot of their parents would have bought property for a song in the late nineteen nineties, early two thousands, when China privatized its housing stock, so they haven't had to, you know, buy their own homes. Their education has been paid for. Um, you know, they've traveled overseas as young adults on their on mum and dad's credit cards. But I will say, I will say that um, there are there are serious caveats to this scenario, and uh, the good times are not going to last forever. At some point, China is going to have a major turndown. We don't know when that's going to be. Uh, but it will have one. And when it comes, it could be pretty brutal. I mean, you could see sharply lower property prices uh, eating into the major asset value of, of Chinese households. Potentially, this is all speculative, potentially inflation, which could you know eat away at, at uh, savings. And it's going to sort of scramble the way that millennials think about the future. They've never had to worry about this before. I would say the second factor is China's aging demographic, that China faces this demographic time bomb. The baby boomers of the 50s and 60s are retiring, and they're going to be supported by a workforce that is shrinking as a result of the one-child family policy, which kicked in in the 70s and, and 80s. And what that's going to mean is that all of these savings, a lot of these savings, are going to go into caring for the elderly and all the conditions associated with aging, um, stroke and heart attack, cancers, and so on. And so these enormous pools of family savings aren't going to look quite as big when faced with, with this demographic shock. 
you know, I mean, that that's right, isn't it, uh, Tom, that on top of everything else, uh, you know, every country is trying to deal with the challenge of ageing and China has that in a particularly acute way. Uh, how do you generate productivity growth in that kind of environment? Andy, I, I really feel like you've dragged the mood down in this discussion. We came in talking about customised Mini Coopers and Nike trainers. I thought maybe Hello Kitty or K-pop might get mentioned at some point. And now here we are talking about old people's home strokes and heart attacks. It's, it's deeply depressing. Um, so um, I think it's a, it's a critically important question. Japan, in some respects, uh, points the way forward. They're the first economy in the world to sell more adult diapers than they sold child diapers. And I think if we delve into Japan, we see various ways in which they're thinking of innovative responses to the problem of aging, uh, including use of uh, robotics in caring, for example. Uh, so perhaps there is a path there. Um, the concluding thought which I, which I had was we should be careful about our assumptions on what drives what. We've talked about the assumption in the past that entering the World Trade Organization would be a driver of economic reform and democratization uh, for China. The idea that Western markets would be sort of seed carriers of Western values. Clearly that didn't play out. Um, and now we have the idea that the millennials will be potentially the seed carriers of a similar set of values because they're more individualistic, um, they're more highly educated. Um, and that is an entirely plausible story. But there's also another plausible story, which is the millennials are allowed to be individualistic and express their preferences when it comes to consumption. They can have whatever color Mini Cooper or whatever color Nike trainers they want. But the Chinese whatever color adult diaper for their grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> Looking, yeah, indeed, maybe some Hello Kitty adult diapers. Um, but their freedom, their individualism is restricted to that relatively narrow world of consumption. And we don't see the larger systemic impacts um, that, that, that many people anticipate. Thank you very much, Andy Brown and uh, Tom Morley. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, we were trying to think big about the future of China, and I think I think we did that. But of course, we can't uh, we can't talk about China these days without also having a few words about U.S.-China trade wars. So I've brought in Sean Donnan, our senior trade reporter, to give me the lowdown on that, and also a bit of insight into how trade wars and the uncertainty they create might be affecting the U.S. economy, and indeed. US politics. Sean, thanks for, for grabbing a few minutes. I know it's a, it's a busy week for you. Just tell us briefly uh, what to think about the developments of the last week or so. You know, I think those people who were not following the day to day on this might have thought we were cruising towards some kind of US-China trade deal. Now everything seems to have gone in reverse over the weekend. What, what's up? Yeah, well, I think the, sh the short answer is the end game in trade negotiations is always messy. There's always ups and downs. There isn't this kind of linear path, linear rational path to to a deal in trade negotiations. There's always, just by the nature of the negotiations and the way they're constructed, the difficult issues are always left to the end. And that's always where you you kind of run into to roadblocks and so on. But there's no doubt that what we're seeing now is some real uh, questions about whether the U.S. and China can even reach a deal because we're getting to the hard part here, which is both sides have to give 
something, and uh, both sides have domestic constituencies, and they also have economies that look a lot better than they did six or nine months ago, uh, which means that they're less inclined to give. So you do get the sense that the Chinese uh, speak with one voice on this, whereas there's quite a lot of different voices and different viewpoints inside uh, Donald Trump's administration on trade. How are those feeding into this? Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to figure out uh, what hap- what is happening exactly internally in terms of the debate in China. They're much more opaque than uh, uh, folks are here in the United States. But clearly, we've seen uh, cycles of hawks and, and doves uh, gaining the ascendancy uh, over the past year or two in, in, in the Trump administration. And we may be on a cycle now where the hawks are, are gaining a little bit more footing. Part of that has to do with the kind of robust economic data that the president is, is seeing about the U.S. economy recently. But part of that is also uh, other things. We're hearing, for example, that Larry Kudlow uh, has taken a few blows over the nomination of Stephen Moore to the Fed and that going wrongly. And that has kind of hurt his credibility inside the administration. He's the, he's the president's economic advisor. He's the, the head yeah. of the National Economic Council, yeah. in theory, the, the kind of the, the grand uh, economic strategist, if you will. And he's also someone who's been in the past anti-tariff and very pro-free trade. I guess what I'm particularly interested in is the impact on the economy. You know, economists have, have tended to always assume that trade wars, tariffs, but also the uncertainty from trade wars is going to be bad uh, for the US economy. I saw you wrote an interesting piece on this um, at the end of last week, just sort of uh, looking at how the numbers were playing out in terms of job losses and job gains. Um, what did you find? Yeah. So one of the interesting things uh, in tariff wars or trade wars is that there clearly are job gains in protected industries. But there's always a question as to how long those gains last for. And what we're starting to see in the jobs numbers and that showed up in the April jobs report is that uh, the gains from uh, in protected industries like steel and electric appliances seem to be peaking. Uh, and in fact, in some cases, even going into reverse. If you look at the primary metals industry, this is one of the big uh, beneficiaries of Trump's tariffs. Uh, over the past year, since he introduced tariffs on steel and aluminum, uh, the industry has added 4,700 jobs. That compares to 2.6 million jobs added in the overall economy. So it's a tiny number uh, compared to the overall addition. But in April, it actually went into reverse, and he actually lost 2,000 jobs in primary metals. Now, we need to be careful of, of looking too much or giving too much credence to monthly data. This stuff is volatile and so on. But it gets at that kind of economic case for tariffs. Uh, is this adding uh, U.S. production? Is this adding jobs in, in the economy? Donald Trump believes it is. Uh, his advisors, his hawks uh, certainly believe it is. But the data is starting to show something a little bit more complicated. Yeah. And as you point out, even even his own, even the president's story focuses on one relatively small industry, the steel industry, when we know that, you know, there are far more consumers of steel in U.S. Uh, in the U.S. economy than there are producers of steel. And I think there's even there's more manicurists than there are steel workers in the U.S. So we always have to have some perspective. Sean, I, uh, we've already had you on the programme with our launch episode on uh, the economics of Fortnite, and I'm sure uh, we'll be talking to you again about trade in the near future. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Come back next week for more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. For more news and analysis from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. And you can also find me on at MyStephanomics. The story in this episode was reported and written by Kevin Hamlin with assistance from Han Miao. It was produced by Magnus Henriksen and edited by Jeff Black and Scott Lamman, who is also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Andrew Brown, Tom Orlig and Sean Donnan. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.